Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, May 7th, 2009. Our guest tonight is Michael Horn, co-founder and executive director of InnoSight Institute and co-author of Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much. It's a uh, real pleasure to be here with everyone, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation, Steve. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks also go to the KnowledgeWorks Institute Foundation, sponsor of the series and creators of the 2020 forecast, and to Illuminate for providing this environment. If you haven't been in Illuminate before, I want to give you a quick overview. At the top of your screen, you'll see some icons that include uh, polling uh, icons, a green check and a red X. If Michael wants to ask you a question, you can answer yes or no using those. Also below your participants box, there's a smiley face icon, a clapping hand, a confused look, and a disapproval thumbs down. Hopefully we won't get many of those. There's also a hand with a green arrow up. And when we go to Q&A, you can use that to raise your hand and let us know you want to ask a question. If you think that you might like to ask a question, this would be a good time to go into Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone's working. You can also leave questions in the chat. I'll do my best to capture those for the end of the show. If I miss them, please feel free to post them again. Speaking of the chat, it helps to keep that chat on topic. It's a, it's a tool that we hope that you'll use and don't want to constrain it in, in much of a way. But at the same time, if it gets too off topic, it can be distracting uh, to the speaker. Okay, this is a map of the world. I've just given you permission to modify that map, that little uh, pencil that appeared next to your name. If you click on the wand with the red dot to the left of the map, and then click on the map where you're listening from, we can see where you're coming in from. So this is a rarity. It looks like a US-only crowd tonight. Unless I've missed something. If I have, please feel free to put it in the chat. So Michael, tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself and the history of your involvement with this book. That's a great question. Uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. My, my background uh, out of Yale University and, and, and co for college, uh, I went to work for David Gergen as his research assistant, uh, where I was grounded in you know public policy and writing and, and all these great things and. Um, after a few years of that, I went to the Harvard Business School with the intention of running away from public policy and writing. And uh, about a year and a half in, I um, was taking this class by this professor, Clayton Christensen, uh, about his theories of disruptive innovation and how to innovate and so forth. And I was just blown away by it. It just totally changed the way uh, I, I saw really everything. 
And midway through the class, uh, it's interesting, he, he, he said one day, you know, I had this opportunity uh, for someone to co-author a book with me about public education. Uh, I, I really need someone to help me uh, push it across, you know, really get this done. And I happened to be meeting with him that day about something totally unrelated, a, a paper I was writing for his class. And at the very end of the session, I said, you know, Clay, if, gosh, if, if you just have me on board, I, I didn't go to business school to do this, but I, I would just be delighted if, if you'd take me on. I'd be really just thrilled. So he thought about it for two or three months, um, and then eventually uh, offered the job, and I took it, and uh, just set off, I, I think, uh, something that I really didn't expect in my life, but it's been really exciting. Uh, I've learned a lot and come right back around to public policy and writing. Um, the, uh, it, it's, it's, been, it's been really fascinating. Um, so we, when we started, Clay said it'll take about a year to write the book. Uh, it took about two years. And then uh, we started up a nonprofit think tank called Intersight Institute, knowing that the book would be just the beginning of a, um, of a conversation, certainly not uh, answers by any means. And um, and uh, that, that's sort of that's sort of where I came from, and, and the involvement with the book, and how I came to it. So I get the sense from the preface or the introduction that you were really the glue. Do you think that's a fair statement? Oh gosh, uh, it's 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 a very nice statement. Um, I, I I think as someone who's full time just working on the book. Uh, I got to see everything coming across every which way, do a lot of the writing, um, and, and, and perhaps, that's, perhaps that's right. But, you know, Clay uh, and, and Curtis obviously brought a huge uh, background um, and, uh, in, in, in this and, and uh, gave me a great opportunity to do a lot of the research and so forth um, in, in the actual field. Uh, but Clay was really, you know, an inspiration for it, and, and they, they did a lot of work as well. So it was, it was a really great partnership among the three of us. I, I, I guess I get shy about taking too much credit in any effort like this, but, but it was a lot of fun for all of us. I, you know, I think it would be reasonable for you to accept that uh, label. I definitely, without feeling that you were taking too much credit, I definitely really appreciated the sense that I got that you were kind of managing the ideas and that when they, at one point there's a discussion of how they sort of, the chapters would flip around and you'd get, you'd piece everything back into order. So from my perspective, it's, uh, it's great to have uh, you helping to explain this to us. So how important are the ideas in disrupting class? Uh, that's uh, that, that's that's I think the heart of it um, was was the uh, ideas behind it. Um, not necessarily that we had any answers per se, um, but that we really were hoping to give a bring a new language uh, to the field. One of the central problems that I always notice uh, in education, and, and I'm sure many of you have had the same um, uh, noticed a, a similar phenomenon, is you go into these meetings with all these great people who really want to change the system and have great ideas for how to do so. And it just seems everyone's talking past each other. Um, everyone uh, has their own language to describe something. Sometimes people use the same language, but it means uh, you know, just to totally different things to different people. And uh, what we really hope to do is to give a language for how innovation predictably happens uh, and introduce this as a common language so that everyone 
to come together to figure out what, what the answers are and so forth together because, you know, we, we put out some answers in the book, but they made, they're, they're partial answers and they're not completely right and so forth. And um, I think we, we acknowledge that. So the ideas about how change happens and so forth, I think, is what's really important and not underpinning it all, if, if that makes sense. It does. And, and you answered a very good question. And it was the one I asked, but it wasn't the one I meant to ask. Um, so I'll ask it again in a slightly different way. How important do you think the insight from the book is to education right now? I got, gotcha. Um, well, I hope I hope it's quite important. I mean, what we really set out to do was say, what are the root causes of why schools are struggling? And that schools are struggling, I think, should not be something we should be surprised by. Um, we, we really, in this, in this global environment where we see countries uh, around the world doing really neat things with their school systems and innovating and pushing forward, sometimes because of their school systems, sometimes just because of demand for them to escape poverty and uh, really get ahead in the world, um, it's becoming a really competitive place. And, and we've changed certainly our expectations of what schools deliver uh, without allowing this the system to change as well. Um, and so I think it's, it's vitally important to think about what are the root causes of why those schools struggle, how do we individualize education, in our view, is one of the biggest um, things that you have to think about there so that you can allow everyone to learn in the way that makes sense for them, explore their strengths, uh, work on their weaknesses, uh, but do so in a way that's positive and, and keeps propelling them um, for more education so that not only every individual uh, can reach their uh, maximum potential, but also the country uh, will be better off for it. And, you know, Steve, it's interesting. When, when you think about, uh, I don't want to jump too much into the theory too quickly, but, but one of the takeaways from, uh, from our research is very clear, uh, which is, it's easier uh, to innovate in some ways in places where there's non-consumption. That's where breakthrough innovations tend to happen is at the fringes, if you will, where there's no legacy system in place. And uh, so if you look around the landscape of, of the world and you look at developing countries in particular and you see mass, just huge swaths of, of young children coming up that haven't had an opportunity for an education and you think, where is the innovation naturally going to really happen? Well, gosh, from a world perspective, this is really exciting because it, it means if we harness the powers of innovation, we can really educate uh, students around the world much better and have a much uh, better world society. But from a US-centric point of view, uh, if we can step there for a second, well, that's a scary thought because we have this legacy system that creates a lot of, uh, uh, make, makes it very hard uh, to, to innovate and, um, and, and so taking seriously the ideas of how to uh, uh, get, get through that and innovate predictably so that we can stay up with the rest of the world becomes vitally important, I think. Does that, does that come closer to answering that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to put in a link in the chat to an article that, um, that you and Clayton Christensen wrote from Education Next, and, and I'm going to read a quote from it. That schools have gotten back, have gotten little back from their investment in technology should come as no surprise. Virtually every organization does the same thing schools have done when implementing an innovation. 
An organization's natural instinct is to cram the innovation into its existing operating model to sustain what it already does. This is the predictable course, the logical course, and the wrong one. Okay, so that really bowled me over because that really described a lot of my thinking. Uh, how are people responding to this message? That's really interesting um, that you chose that one. I, I think that's, um, to me, it made a lot of sense when, when we wrote it. And it's, it's sort of a lightning bolt, I think, for people who really understand what it means. Uh, because what it says is that, you know, look, it's natural and, and totally logical that schools would, would see something, a potentially exciting innovation like computers, and use it to marginally improve, sustain what they're currently doing. That's totally logical and makes uh, total sense. Um, and yet, yet, the, uh, yet the challenge uh, really is that if we agree that transformation is necessary, and I think a lot of us would say, or, you know, we really need to break through and change the game, uh, then you have to take a counterintuitive course. Uh, and, and that's what became so, so important. And, and that's really the insight there. And the counterintuitive course, of course, is not going into your mainstream systems to sustain what you already do, add cost, marginally improve it, uh, but to really take a different course, find these fringe areas, and create a new model. It's not the technology per se. It's really the model that you put it in uh, that explains how it gets used and so forth. And, and so I think that's a really vital insight. Um, People, people, of, uh, people who are maybe um, just, just technology people might, might sort of, uh, that might make them a little bit uncomfortable, I think. And, and so you see some of that reaction. But I think people that think about, gee, technology, this is actually a great thing for how technology can be really used in some exciting ways to really personalize the experience if we really uh, change up a lot of our old assumptions going in. So I, see I, found, there right now. I see a quote there right now that yeah, I think is ahead. great. It's about transforming the teaching and the learning, not about the technology. It's really about the transformation. I think, I think that's right. So I think what's interesting about this is that a lot of us probably picked up disrupting class, got to the graphs about disruption, and thought, does this really have anything to do with me or us? But I'm finding more and more that, that the message is resonating with me in terms of better understanding how I can really help if I believe there's a, a need for fundamental change. I think that's exactly the hope. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. Uh, just look at the Gates Foundation and, and their work in healthcare and education. Um, in, in healthcare, they looked at the developing world and there wasn't a system when they were doing a lot of their innovations, right? So they, they can actually make some very bold moves, um, not just do bed nets, but really look at vaccines and some really breakthrough things. Uh, and then they looked at education and said, well, we've got a great school system here. Let's, let's see what we can do to, um, to just sort of marginally improve that. Um, and they've had a lot more struggles in, in creating meaningful reform. Um, what we're really trying to do here, and one of the core ideas is saying that's not how breakthrough innovations come about. Um, and that's a very important message. It's a very tough message. People in the field of any field, they always focus on the most complicated problems uh, in, in the areas where there's the most attention. And that's 
not what our theories of innovation tend to show uh, works in, in when you're really trying to transform something. Okay, so let's step back just for a second. And I wonder if you might not kind of describe for us, as is done in the book, the common reasons that people give for why schools aren't doing well. So in, in, into that first thing, what, what we thought we would do in, in the introduction in, ter in terms of the uh, common explanations uh, for why schools were not doing well, you, you, you'll often hear it's sort of a guns, germs, and steel approach, right, Steve? Uh, we, we basically said, gee, you know, you, you, you tend to think maybe it's just the money. Um, a lot of people say, well, if we just threw more money at the problem, I bet that would solve it. And you, you, gosh, you just look at, at, at what we've done, doubled real spending in the last uh, 30 years, and uh, the results don't really show much of a change. So you say, huh, maybe it's something more than just throwing money at the problem. Um, and uh, maybe that's just not it. And then, then, then you know, you turn around and you say, well, gosh, maybe it's just the unions. Maybe it's all their fault. We hear that explanation all the time, right? And you, and you look around and you say, well, there's some school districts that aren't unionized, really, in, in the U.S., and they don't do as well as some school districts that are unionized. So maybe it's not really the unions, per se. Maybe something else more fundamental is going on here. And that's what we really try to do, is peel back each of the layers of the onion uh, and, and just say, you know, maybe there's an anomaly here that, that leads us to believe, yeah, that's not unimportant, but it's not the whole, it's not the whole enchilada, if you will. Um, and, and then people say, well, it's the cumulative of all those things. Um, and, and we sort of put those together and, 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 and no, it doesn't actually seem like all those things are, are uh, you know, wor working against us either because some school systems still do better um, and have a lot of the same factors uh, gnawing at them. And so it seems like, gosh, something else really is here. And it really comes down to, in many ways, a, a problem of innovation and a uh, motivation problem. And, and I, you know, I think if I were to go back and um, I think we all feel this way. If we were to go back and, and rewrite the book, we'd spend a lot more time on this point about motivation, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation being really the root cause of a lot of our problems and, and, and prosperity in many ways being the enemy uh, to change and, and success. And if you just look through uh, the sweep, sweep of history um, with Japan, uh, where just in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, everyone was saying, gosh, Japan's going to eat our lunch. Look at how many students are in science and engineering. Well, science and engineering at that time, studying it, was a great way to escape poverty for their students. It's a very one-to-one -one, uh, linkage. And, um, and then uh, you turn around now, Japan reached uh, pro you know, really great prosperity in the late 80s. And the numbers of students studying science and engineering, those tough subjects, it seems so vital to uh, countries on the way up, has just gone down, um, just gone down year over year. It's been very consistent. And now, of course, we look over and look at India and China. Here they come, and everyone is studying science and engineering, and oh my goodness. Well, again, for them now, having turned the industrial corner, uh, it's a way for them to escape poverty. And so the extrinsic motivation is very high. For the most part, we don't have that in the U.S. because for the most part, and, and there's obviously exceptions, um, and, and this goes across not just prosperity but all, and, or economic but also cultural things, 
um, we don't have that extrinsic motivation to really push through no matter how boring the subject matter is. So it really seems like we've got to treat, uh, te teach these uh, subjects or, or offer these learning opportunities in ways that are intrinsically motivating um, and, and make it so that students really demand uh, the education and are excited by it. It's something that really appeals to them in the way that they learn uh, with the motivations that they bring to the table in, in subject matters uh, that excite them. Um, and so you can access math through baseball or you can access math the old way, but that's, that's okay. Let's really appeal to uh, students where they are and, and, and make learning fun. So I have to say I thought that portion of the book was brilliant. Uh, both the combination of looking at the specific reasons that we typically use for describing uh, why we think schools aren't successful or aren't doing well. And then, for me at least, the motivation piece answered some really huge questions, uh, specifically with regard to sort of understanding uh, why certain uh, groups within the U.S. tend to do better in schools and, and, and where it leaves us currently. So if we, if we accept that motivation piece as being uh, really a fundamental problem and that, in fact, we don't have the driving uh, motivation that would allow for, um, for, for education to exist with, uh, and people to just uh, accept it and, and be proactive on their own, it sounds like the first thing we have to take into account is the fact that students learn differently and we need to address that. Is that, is that the first point? That, that's exactly right, Steve. Uh, you know, the first observation is something that we all intuitively know, right? If you have children and you watch, uh, if you have two children and you just watch them playing with each other or learning or something like that, you, you definitely intuitively know uh, that, that they learn differently from each other. Um, there's a, academics took a little bit longer to catch up to the game and um, we, uh, you know, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, Howard Gardner came out with his theory of multiple intelligences to start to categorize this. And look, there's a lot of food fights right now in the academy over what's the right way to think about differences. Is it uh, multiple intelligences, learning styles, aptitudes, motivations, talents, uh, the schemes go on and on. Um, I think it kind of misses the point, um, and, and we wanted to rise, rise above that a little bit and just assert the basic idea that we learn differently, whether that's different paces, um, different ways of thinking about the world, uh, and, and, and so forth. And some of this may even be day to day, um, but, but we learn differently. And so if we learn differently, uh, introducing a subject in a monolithic way is not going to be terribly motivating. It's not going to grab someone's attention, speak to them in the way that they think, uh, and really suck them into a subject. And so uh, ex understanding that and accepting that and then thinking about, well, if everyone learns differently, maybe we ought to offer people different learning opportunities rather than shoving them through a monolithic system that won't reach them all. Um, and and that's, I think that's really important and uh, vital to, to helping solve that intrinsic, to, to make education intrinsically motivating such that it excites someone and brings them into the topic. Okay, so then it seems to me that you go on to say that um, 
that there that there is uh, a, a lot of reason to be optimistic that we we can do this. That it's very that, that schools um, have constantly improved and they're going to improve. And then you give a description of technology that I think maybe would take most of us by surprise because it wasn't uh, computers. Do you recall how you defined it there? I think I know what you're referring to, which is our definition of technology is uh, basically any process whereby you uh, transform inputs into outputs. Is that the one that you're talking about? Correct. We, that's how we think about technology. Um, and, and once you do that, it really opens up uh, your mind to, to what a lot of this is, is accomplishing. It's, it's really a process. And so um, I, I, I think it's a very different way of thinking about technology from just gadgets and so forth. But it's a very human and useful way uh, of thinking about uh, how technology actually affects all of our lives in very interesting ways just beyond the computer and so forth uh, and, and, and what that might mean. Well, so what I heard you say was that technology is going to help this happen. But I also heard you say that technology is not necessarily just the computer in the classroom. That's exactly right. It's, it's really rethinking the process uh, as, as much as just simply shoving uh, a, a piece of hardware into some place and, um, and, 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 and letting it run. Um, really rethinking uh, everything. And, and, and that's what we, we started to get into then what a disruptive innovation is. And disruptive innovation is really uh, an innovation that transforms a market or field by introducing simplicity, affordability, uh, ease of use, uh, uh, convenience, things of that nature, where before the industry was characterized by products or services that were complicated, expensive, inaccessible, inconvenient, um, and it really transforms it, but it does so uh, by planting itself at the fringes in, in areas of non-consumption. And the interesting thing is that disruptive innovation is basically made up of three parts. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that we said this in the book, but the first part is that simplifying technology. And so Southwest Airlines, for example, uh, is a disruptive innovation. Its simplifying technology wasn't necessarily new planes or anything, uh, but it was a new process for turning around planes at the gate such that they could uh, get, them around, get them out faster. Um, and uh, Toyota had a new process at its heart. Um, and that was the simplifying technology, if you will. And then it meets into a new business model or organization model. And that second step, I think, is the most important uh, part of the understanding. Uh, when you think about online banking, for example, uh, online banking can either be disruptive or it can, and, and transformative, or it can sustain what we're already doing. Merrill Lynch used uh, the online platform to sustain their current practice when, when, they, when they implemented it to allow them to serve high net worth individuals even better. Uh, Charles Schwab used online uh, platform in a totally different way, totally new business model such that they could uh, serve many people who before did not have access to the stock market and so forth. Uh, ING has used uh, online banking in a very disruptive way. For many banks, it's been used to transform. So the technology by itself is not inherently disruptive or not, it's potentially so. And then it's really the key of sticking in a new model uh, that really changes the process, changes the value proposition, 
changes the priorities and allows it to run in a whole whole new way to transform uh, an industry. So uh, what was interesting for me was that uh, the group that's here tonight probably and, and a lot of those people that I end up spending time with, the discussion is mostly around pedagogy. And this language, this sort of language of business, um, isn't, isn't, wasn't easy for me immediately to understand or adopt. So could you help describe the difference between a sustaining and a disruptive innovation? Absolutely. Um, it's a good question, and, 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 and we really tried to make the book as, as simple as possible, so I hope we somewhat succeeded, but um, because, because there was such a different, uh, different audience from Clayton's prior works, I think. Um, so, so we really tried to explain it from the beginning, and, and a sustaining innovation is, in essence, an innovation that allows uh, the current uh, products or services, the current players offering those, uh, to do what they're already doing uh, better, um, to serve their best customers or users even better, um, and to uh, allow, oftentimes allow them to make more money doing so. So it sustains a trajectory of improvement, um, and they're often breakthrough innovations that really uh, move the, say, the microprocessor forward several generations. Sometimes they're just year-to-year -year incremental improvements, but if, if the idea is that it sustains uh, that innovation along its trajectory to serve uh, the best customers even better and allow the uh, organization to do what it does even better, then we call it a sustaining innovation. A disruptive innovation, and let's just be honest, it's, it's a horrible name for it, um, it, it, it tends to imply breakthrough or, or it, it has a whole bunch of uh, connotations in the English language. But what we mean by it is a disruptive innovation really disrupts that existing trajectory and, um, and uh, brings forth a technology that by the old standards is not as good uh, as, as the one that was in existence. And because it's not as good, it, it can't take root in the mainstream market. Um, and it plants itself in a simple application outside of the mainstream where people uh, we're not able to consume the old technology, uh, takes root, plants itself, and uh, year by year gets better as well, just like the sustaining innovations. And then that's how it transforms by offering a new value proposition of uh, this convenience and so forth, uh, affordability, and starts to be able to do more and more complicated problems over time such that it uh, makes a lot of sense for the old users to switch into the new plane of uh, the disruptive innovation. So I think maybe so maybe helpful for people in the education environment is to think about a disruptive technology as being one that actually doesn't necessarily make sense for an existing organization to adopt based on their current ways of measuring. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it's, it's very counterintuitive for incumbents um, to offer disruptive innovation uh, because to them it appears not as good. To them it, it's not going to serve the people that they best serve. Um, and so it's very counterintuitive for them to, to, uh, to, to go after it. And it's one of the big principles of a disruptive innovation, which is this idea of asymmetric motivation. Uh, what, what feels good um, for the entrant organizations offering the disruptive innovation uh, 
uh, feels good for the uh, existing organizations to move away from and not do. Um, and, and, and so that, that's, a, that's a very good characterization, I'd say. So one of the things that uh, kind of intrigued me too is, and again, uh, I'm sensitive, I sort of feel like I'm bridging two worlds because I think a lot of the, the dialogue that you use is sort of business-related discussions, and I think a lot of us are used to thinking in terms of very sort of school-centric uh, phrases. But part of what intrigued me about disruptive innovations or innovations that don't necessarily make sense to the existing structure is that if, in fact, there are a lot of disruptive innovations taking place, the existing organization doesn't know which one is really going to succeed. And, and that sort of helps me to understand as well why an organization would have difficulty taking a disruptive uh, innovation and actually beginning to apply it. That, that's exactly right. And I think that's a really key insight. We didn't talk about that in the book, I think. But, um, but I think that's a really good point, which is you never know which one is going to truly be the transformative idea, right? Um, and it's something we see in companies uh, all the time, certainly, but it's also something we're now seeing in the school market, which is, gee, that seems like a promising idea. Of course the world ought to look like that. Um, but because it's disruptive, it's never been done before. Uh, and, we, and we don't know um, uh, if, if, if it'll really take off as we think it will. Uh, and so the world is very uncertain uh, in, 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 those disruptive, uh, in those disruptive landscapes. And, and we, we can talk a little bit if, if you want. We can, we can go where, what, what does that mean for someone that's, that's trying to innovate in a disruptive way? Because it means something very different from a year-to-year -year sustaining innovation uh, in, in how you approach it. We, we can go there if you'd like, or uh, we, can, we can keep pushing forward. Well, no, I, I think that would be, uh, I would like to go there because I think a lot of uh, those who are in conversations about the future of education uh, are thinking about changes that we would like to see that would be transformative. And I think that this understanding of where disruptive innovation takes hold would help us to better understand where to put our efforts. So, so what does disruptive innovation help us to think differently about with regard to change in schools? Great question. So uh, one of the things it says is that the most, like I said earlier, the most complicated problems that we tend to consume ourselves with as experts in any field may not be where the disruptive innovation first takes hold that really transforms the place. It may be in a simpler application um, where, where, where we actually don't see anything right now, um, so, something that's off of our radars. And so that's something that you often see with a disruptive innovation. The, the other thing that's interesting is I, I really think I'm really impressed with the point you made before, which is that uh, you know, there, there's many types of innovations that we can wrap in new models that we think might take off. And then they don't do, you know, we, we, we say this is the answer. And so we invest millions and millions and millions of dollars in, in, in that way. And it doesn't do what we'd expect to do. Um, and, and that's because uh, when you're in a disruptive innovation world, it's, again, you don't know what the future is going to look like. We, we wrote a book. We, we made some predictions. We said how we would love to see some things unfold. Uh, but, but really, we don't know what it's going to look like in 10, 15 years. I, that's the only thing I, the only thing we can predict for certain is that whatever I tell you, uh, my vision of what this will look like is probably wrong. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
but we'll, so, so a much, I think, sounder approach to innovating in that sort of a circumstance is to say, okay, what would a positive outcome look like? And once we've sort of said this is something that we'd be excited about, then get in there and say, what are all of our assumptions underlying uh, that outcome? What are we assuming has to be true um, for, for, for this to come around the way we think it will? And literally brainstorming activity. What, throw out all the assumptions there. You, I, people would be surprised, I think, about the number of implicit assumptions we make about why something will, will work or why students will gravitate towards something and so forth. And they may be right about some of them, but they may be wrong about others that are critically important. And if, if we knew we were wrong about them, we'd say, well, gee, the end state has no chance of coming about. And so what we like to say is get those assumptions out there, figure out which ones are the most important ones. In other words, the ones that if you were, uh, if you were uh, wrong about, uh, it would just shuttle the project tomorrow. And figure out really quick, easy ways to test them and test those propositions uh, and, and really have a good portfolio of innovation as a result uh, where you're just testing lots of assumptions. And as things start to uh, be true or false, you're, you're starting to uh, uh, tack back and forth to find the right path forward to really figure out where the transformation will go and if the transformation will do actually what you think it should do. And that's, that's critically important. It's a very different mindset um, from how we normally think about innovating. Um, and it's a very different mindset from certain innovations, sustaining innovations, where we know how the world works. We know what the basic principles are. Um, and therefore, we can focus on the outcomes because we know that our assumptions are basically true. We've seen it over and over again. So it's a very different flip in mindset um, and should be less capital intensive in the short run. And then once we really figure something out that works, then, you know, uh, then, then blow it up and really, really, really ride it. So I'm curious to get a response from in, in the chat as well to this. But the, the, one of the examples you use is Intel. And once they had the language of disruptive innovation, they were able to uh, look at the kinds of innovation that were taking place in, in low-price chips and develop this, this Celeron. But I wonder in education if that's presupposing that there is a desire to innovate. In public education, you're pretty much in a monopoly. And so I wondered if, in fact, the description of, you know, sort of looking for areas in which to incubate innovation doesn't work in public education because there isn't necessarily going to be a top-down desire to find those disruptive innovations. I think that's a really interesting insight. I'd be curious what people in the, in the, in the room think as well. But um, I, I, I think that's right. There's a lot of motivations and so forth throughout the system to not do those things. There's a lot of interests aligned against those, uh, even finding things that might change the order. Um, and, and I think that's really what you just summarized. Uh, it's also hard, I think, a lot of times to find a top-down innovation and disruptive innovation. It's almost, uh, it's almost uh, oxy an oxymoron, I think. Um, it's, it's, it, it's hard to premeditate these things because we don't know what it'll look like. Um, and it may be out of range of what we're concerned with and consumed with on a day-to-day -day basis, I think, a lot of times. So then the lesson that I would take from that is that for those of us who are interested in um, particular technologies that we feel could be transformative is to look for areas in which there are underserved populations or unserved populations. And 
incubate, test out, and try these. And the example that comes to mind for me fairly quickly is the Knox School program in the UK. And maybe somebody in the chat's more familiar with it than I am. But where they took students who had dropped out and then by offering online courses saw substantial rates of kids getting re-engaged in schooling. Yeah, I think that's a great example, Steve. And um, dropouts are a classic area where you can really ex experiment to see what works for, for whom. And um, there's, there's, there's no one there that's, that's serving these kids right now, but they certainly need something. And you've seen the non-school movement, I believe, take hold in Michigan now. Um, and I'm blanking on the district. If, 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 someone, if someone knows it, um, they, they might fill it in. But they've, they've done a similar thing where they've moved things online. Uh, broken up all the assumptions on when learning occurs, uh, you know, not necessarily certainly in the four walls of the classroom, and uh, done some really neat things, and I think had some pretty interesting results in their first year or so of operations. Okay, so we've got uh, just a few more minutes before we'll switch to the Q&A portion. I know that many of you are very anxious to do that. I won't delay. Um, I've certainly I've been able to ask the questions that I wanted to ask. I wanted to, to kind of lob one more sort of topic towards you, Michael. You give advice in the last section of the book, and you do so to a variety of uh, different groups, leaders, foundations, entrepreneurs, training college, grad students, teachers. Um, what I hear you saying is in that is that uh, with the new language, those of us who may be in very different positions can better understand the role that we might play so if, if we assume that this group is largely current educators who are in the system, what advice would you give them? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think uh, teachers can be really, or educators can be really active about starting to see these disruptive innovations when they see uh, a student for whom the current approach is not working, um, trying to find something for them. Uh, bringing it into their schools um, in, in, in unique uh, credit recovery programs uh, to allow their schools to um, offer advanced courses, uh, things like that. I think there's some very tangible things that educators um, can do. And, and they can break out of, te then teachers can break out of the system too, right, and, and move to these new platforms of teaching where I think the implication in the book is that teachers, the role of a teacher will, will change. And, and maybe we shouldn't call it a teacher anymore. But um, we really becomes a learning coach, a, a mentor, motivator, uh, sort of, you know, I, I hate falling back on the cliche, but the guide on the side rather than the stage on the stage. And um, I, that's an exciting world, but it's one we need a lot more thought process over what does being a problem solver in this world look like. And uh, so, so that's, that's I, I think those are some of the things we, we can start thinking about as educators trying to play with this is uh, where are those areas of non-consumption in our own midst? Can we start to bring in innovations that allow us to change our own practice? Uh, and professional development is a big opportunity, right, uh, as well, um, to bring in some innovative uh, learning practices, just-in-time professional development through the Internet um, and so forth. I, I, you know, students, I, I see that coming up on the chat right now. Students can often help guide the learning, too. Um, and I'm really excited about the, the role of Web 2.0, uh, I think, in this transformation of the, of the, we call it a user network, whereby students can create content to help uh, explain things to other students. Teachers can create content. It's the ultimate problem solver tutoring model. Uh, and I think that's really exciting. 
I mean, who knows what it will look like and, and how it will really take off. But, but that's what I get hopeful about. And I think a lot of the talk about 21st century skills will start to happen in that Web 2.0 world or, or I hear see even 3.0 world where, um, where you know, we, we talk a lot about creating, evaluating, problem solving. Well, gosh, creating content to help solve problems and offer materials in new ways, uh, that sounds a lot like doing a lot of these skills that we think are awfully important and, and very important uh, in, in the global economy today. So, so I think that's an exciting potential as well. Okay, so I do want to uh, open it up for Q&A. We've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, while we do so, I'm actually going to post the survey for tonight's show. This is no, I started putting it up earlier. Michael, you have administrative privileges, so if you close that window down, unfortunately it will close for everyone, so I'm going to ask you to, to leave it open. But there's the survey, and please feel free to, to fill that out at your leisure as we finish up with the Q&A. So I did make note of a couple of questions. Uh, the first was early on. John Becker asked, why did you choose to, to look specifically at K-12? He felt like higher ed fit the theory better. Fantastic question and fantastic point. Um, I think if you actually look at higher ed, there's been far more disruption occurring. Um, uh, community colleges have been largely disruptive to uh, state universities. They're now educating roughly 50% or so of higher education students. Um, and online universities are coming up underneath them and, and what, it's around 4 million enrollments now. Uh, and they're really allowing uh, a, a total change in bringing affordability and convenience uh, to many adult learners and so forth that would not have options otherwise. Um, to, to, to either switch careers or, or get higher education and so forth. So I think it's a robust uh, area of where disruption is actually occurring much more rapidly than the K-12 market. So totally agree. Um, and I think in retrospect, uh, again, if we, if we redid the book, we've, we've learned a ton in the last almost year since it's been out. Uh, we would have written a lot more. I think we probably should have put in a whole chapter about higher ed, maybe two. Um, both because it's happening, so it's a good example from education of how this might play out. But secondly, um, because the higher ed system and the K-12 system is very interdependent, to use our language. Uh, the way our structures within K-12 look the way they do for many reasons because of higher ed and admissions processes play all kinds of interesting roles in this. Um, so I think thinking about that relationship would have been a good idea. Uh, had we gone back and done it from scratch. We'll look for the second edition. So you're certainly welcome to raise your hand if you want to ask a question. I have uh, written down a couple of more. Uh, Michael Nico asks, how do entrepreneurs overcome the fear barriers that parents have with respect to further online immersion at home when doing homework? Uh, that's an interesting question. You know, there's a book that's going to be coming out um, gosh, in a couple months, uh, and I just totally blanked on who wrote it, but um, about advice for um, parents uh, in, this, in, in virtual schooling worlds um, and, and how to think about learning online and so forth. Uh, so, so, I, so I think that's um, a resource that will hopefully be very helpful um, to navigating this new world. In terms of fears and so forth, uh, that, that, I think that's a good question as well. The, the, to, some, 
to some degree, the question also should be what assumptions are underpinning um, the adults' characterization of that, and, and how much do they live online, how much do their kids already live online, uh, maybe not with school per se or education. Um, and uh, it, you know, I, I know there are fears about the negative influences of this, but how much positive comes from it as well. Uh, and so thinking about that, I think, is really important. Um, there's a great uh, video, uh, or there's a great ad out um, from a Kaplan University. Some of you may have seen. Um, so some of you may have seen that, um, where uh, it's Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince. James Avery is the actor. And he basically gets up in front of a huge lecture hall and says, the system has failed you. And uh, they re it really pushes you to think about, gee, learning happens in all sorts of places and with all sorts of tools that were not at our disposal uh, before. And I think Susan Patrick had a great quote at the beginning that you posted at the beginning, Steve, of your um, chat session with her uh, a, a, a couple weeks ago, I guess, um, where she said one of the biggest barriers is our old assumptions and our memories of how school works. So I think getting beyond um, that and maybe showing some of these videos and really uh, asking what are your assumptions when you say that would, would go a long way uh, toward, toward changing that. Okay, we're going to let Seth ask his question. Seth, I'm going to give you the mic. To turn your mic on, you click on the uh, audio mic button in that box. Give it a try. Give it a try. Okay, can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? You're good. You're good. Okay, thank you. Um, my my school district, Minneapolis Public Schools, is uh, entertaining the idea of self-governing schools, and they're they're talking about being open to a lot of new ideas. I was wondering uh, if you have any good ideas for resources I might use as I write a proposal for a school that is truly uh, innovative, or perhaps use your word disruptive. Uh, that's an interesting question. So, I, so some of the resources that are out there, there are a lot of great resources that are just burgeoning. I, I'd encourage you to go to the uh, now it's the iNACOL uh, website, N-A-C-O-L, um, that that, uh, that that gives a lot of links uh, to some of the great things that are out there. Um, there. There's a lot of great free resources. We've wrote we've written a little bit about that on on, on my blog uh, at either InsightInstitute.org or DisruptingClass.com. Uh, about some of the free education resources out there. Uh, I think there's some really cool companies coming up like K-12 Inc. that offer really top-notch curriculum um, that I check out as well. And then I'll give you one other tip. Uh, there's this program called uh, that's starting to get some traction called Guaranteach, G-U-A-R-A-N-T-E-A-C-H. I, I, I guess Steve can throw it out on there, or I'll type it in. Um, Guaranteach. Uh, is, is a uh, company that's starting out by just offering tutoring tools. They basically offer 10 different videos for each concept in math, um, t uh, shown in very different learning styles, very different ways. So if, you're chi if a child in your school is struggling with the concept, uh, they just go on, say, I'm on page 153 of whatever textbook, and, uh, and uh, then a video comes down, starts to match to your learning style, and can offer it in a very different ways so you can uh, start to understand the concept over time. It's, it's pretty neat. So I'm interested, Michael, that so uh, I'm interested, Michael, one of the things that uh, seems to be happening is that uh, a group that educators have typically looked to as potentially um, not a great influence in education, the vendors, 
become more and more a force for positive in a disruptive innovation? Let me make sure I understand the question. The, the existing ven vendors is in the big three textbook companies or, or vendors at large and, and private companies and so forth? I was thinking of vendors in general. Okay, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so I, I think vendors can be hugely helpful in, in uh, supplying totally new curriculum, new ideas outside the box thinking. They're really chasing new opportunities. Um, and uh, so I think they can be hugely helpful if used correctly. One thing that I, an idea that I, I heard just a couple weeks ago, I was up in Vancouver uh, speaking to the Virtual School Society there. And uh, the head of it said to me, you know, some program I had named to him, I can't remember what it was. He said, that sounds great. I'd love to use it on a usage basis. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'd love to just, I don't want to pay a flat fee you know, some, for them to deliver a whole bunch of just stuff for me. I really want um, to be able to pay based on whether my students and teachers use it. Does it help them learn? Um, so I'm not stuck with having made a huge investment in one thing and then some other product that looks similar to me comes along and, uh, and I've already spent all my money on that and I really wish I had done something else. And, and this way we can create something that's more robust. So I, I feel like that's actually maybe a disruptive business model um, that, that uh, could be very helpful for an online school that can track actual usage and so forth. Uh, so we can see if something actually working, and if it is, then we'll pay for it, but otherwise we can be a little bit more suspicious. So I think the private sector will play a huge role in a lot of the innovation, and I think we can do some interesting ways to make sure we're, we're, we're taking the good stuff and not paying for stuff we're, we're not as excited about. One other question, Steve, that I saw earlier. When, when's the next book um, uh, that I, I, I saw someone ask? Um, good, good question. I, I think we've been debating a little bit. Do we want to just release a second edition with some of the things I've talked about? Uh, where I think we're coming out is that um, we, uh, you know, we, we could do that, but the goal here is really not the perfect book. <laughs> the goal here is really a better education system that uh, reaches everyone. and. And just a Me Too book or a second edition, I'm not sure how many people would actually read it um, and go out and buy it. So I think what we're aiming to do right now is out of the institute that we've set up, uh, we're, we're writing a lot of case studies about examples of disruptive innovation in education, fill out a lot of the pieces, correct some of the, you know, learn about where we got things wrong. And maybe in three years or so, we'd put out a field book that gives a little bit more of the how. Because uh, our book, I, well, you know, I love it. It, it. it doesn't answer the how questions in many respects. Um, so if we gave a lot of different stories from different circumstances and so forth, I think that, that could be pretty exciting. So that's one thing we're looking at. The other book we're looking at um, potentially is based on our jobs to be done uh, theory. I, I don't know if I have time to explain that right now. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's uh, Clay and I are extremely excited about this uh, project. Um, if we go out there and, and, and really uh, understand uh, how students, parents, and educators think about uh, education in, in a very different way from, from how we've traditionally thought about it. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet. I don't know if I have time to explain it. If you'd like me to answer another question or, 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 or briefly get on my soapbox and talk about that, up to you guys. Let's go ahead and uh, let Roberto ask his question since he's been waiting patiently. Michael, you'll just have to promise that you'll come back next year uh, and we can ask you questions about it. 
Rebecca, I've given you the mic. What you need to do is to click on the mic button in the audio box to turn your mic on. Okay. Hold a second. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, Michael, I, I have a... Now you just clicked your mic button off. You started, Roberto, and we lost you. Okay, I'm sorry. I I, I um, went to the Grand Keach that you mentioned, the idea of the of the videos, and uh, and and I'm still seeing that as different, but yet the same. So I have a hard time seeing the innovation of presenting information in in multiple different ways, but yet still presenting information. It's almost like uh, a different kind of stage in a stage is different modalities, but still same style. Uh, and I was wondering if you have a idea of other ways of learning rather than teaching, because I don't like the idea of always teaching, other ways of learning that yet there are to come. Great, great question, Roberto. I think you're um, on to something here. Um, you know, I, I think uh, exploring much more robust environments just beyond videos um, will, will be a longer term uh, place to go. And I think we already are seeing some people go there. Um, Guaranteed to me is sort of like a 1.5 platform right now. Um, but uh, and in the book, we tried to stay away from using the word teaching um, and, and move to learning um, and, and stay away from words like instruction and things like that. So. Uh, I, I think you're right on. Um, there's, there is a company out there that I've just come across called Dreambox Learning, and they do some neat things um, where, where it's much more game-based environments and, and so forth like that to explore things. Uh, Chris Deedy out of Harvard Ed School is doing some very interesting work around virtual worlds and how you might learn uh, in those um, that I think is very neat. He's got a very cool game where uh, there's an epidemic that sleeps through the town, which now actually seems more timely than it did perhaps when he first made it. Um, and students have to literally, you know, question around and uh, figure out what's going on and, and solve for some of these um, problems. And I see that Chris is going to be coming up uh, with an interview this month. He and I did a session in North Carolina a few weeks ago that was just the most fun session I've ever done. Um, they're, they're doing really neat things around around these uh, around these ideas and, and offering truly new learning opportunities. So I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I have no disagreements with you. Okay, so as hard as it is, let's finish there. Uh, Michael, many thanks to you. I'm clapping for you. You can uh, clap for Michael by hitting the hand with the little red lines coming out of it. Thanks to KnowledgeWorks and to Illuminate. Uh, Thanks to you for coming tonight and participating. I do have Susan Patrick coming up, Michael Wesch, uh, Chris Deedy, John C. D. Brown, and David Thornburg. They should be great interviews. Michael, I feel like I've learned a lot tonight. I'm really appreciative of the time, and, and I hope that it was um, you felt it was a good investment on your part. Oh, well worth it, Steve, and I'd uh, love to come back. Uh, I feel like I was just starting to get going with you there, so uh, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to come back and. Uh, you know, the, one of the really helpful things uh, for some people who don't know, Steve and I, uh, we, we exchanged, I think, when he, when he reviewed the book, we, we had a few uh, sessions uh, commenting back and forth on each other's blogs, and we both penned some articles uh, for uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, some of the stuff that they were doing. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great conversation. I'd love to keep it up. Thank you so much.
Michael, you're a gracious uh, speaker, and we're really glad to have had you tonight. So thanks, everyone. Have a great night. Sure appreciate your being here.